Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from a very small state. Numb hands from cleaning freezers for hours, shifts that end at four in the morning. These are just a few of the experiences of the dozens of teenagers who spoke to the public's radio about working at seafood processing plants in New Bedford. Nadine Sabai and Nina Sparling are the reporters behind a two-year investigation into migrant teens working these risky jobs. Their series, Underage and Unprotected, came out earlier this year. We'll talk about their reporting and what's happened since after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Nadine Sabai and Nina Sparling. They're the reporters behind Underage and Unprotected, a two-year investigation into migrant teens working risky jobs at seafood processing plants in New Bedford. Welcome, Nadine and Nina. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Nadine, let's start with you. How did you originally learn about this issue? So it was around 2019. At that time, I was the South Coast Bureau reporter covering uh, southeastern Massachusetts. I was really interested in the migrant community in New Bedford particularly. There's a lot, a high level of Central American people living in New Bedford. And I was just kind of searching for stories and trying to learn a little bit more about what was going on. And so I spoke to a source of mine and we were just like rambling about random things. And she was telling me about, oh, we have this event coming up and this other thing, whatever. And then in passing, she told me, oh, you know, and then there are those teenagers, they're working at night at the fish houses and then they go to school and they fall asleep in class. And then she like moved on to the next point. And I was like, Hmm. wait a minute, like, can we rewind? Like, what is happening? And so that was kind of the start of of everything. And tell us about, it was it Nathaniel, one of the teens you interviewed? Tell, tell me about Nathaniel's story. So Nathaniel and his cousin Joel, who was also mentioned in this story, he was born in Mazatenango, Guatemala, and both him and his cousin were escaping gang violence. So essentially they were getting pressure to sell drugs. When they denied that request, that becomes a huge issue. Nathaniel's cousin, Joel, had moved to Tijuana a few years earlier. They met each other in Tijuana and decided to cross the border into the U.S. I remember listening to this story about him swimming and somebody almost drowning. Correct. So that was uh, Joel, his cousin. And so this was at night. The tide was super high. Um, Joel 
described to me how freezing and utterly cold the water was, and he didn't know how to swim. And so he was holding Nathaniel's hand, and then a wave came by and like separated them. Mm. And I asked Joel, well, what did you think was gonna happen? He's like, I thought it was the end. You know, like I didn't think I was gonna make it. And then thankfully he was able to push through some little hole of sand and get through, and then they were able to make it through the border. Hmm. Once they got there, they were separated, put into shelters. Eventually they both ended up with Nathaniel's sister and they lived with her, her two kids, another relative and her husband. When they arrived, it takes time like to get a kid enrolled in school because you need to get all these like vaccines and immunizations and it just takes a while. And so both teens wanted to work in order to provide, you know, essentially take care of themselves because the sister had been taking them in. Both kids said that they got their jobs through workforce to work at Atlantic Red Crab. So Nina, tell us about these seafood processing plants. So the seafood processing industry is a really important industry in New Bedford. Um, there are several plants that are all concentrated on the waterfront, kind of separated from the rest of the city by a highway. They process a range of things. So there are crab processing plants, there are lobster plants, there are plants that do fin fish, right, whole fish. Um, and a lot of the workers in those plants, we've heard from community organizers and from workers themselves, are Central American workers. Just paint the picture of what it's like to be in one of these seafood processing plants. What, what does it smell like? What does it sound like? like? I've been in two processing facilities. One was for fish and the other was um, Atlantic red crab where we saw crab. And then we have what the kids have told us. The way that a typical shift works as the kids have described it is that they come in, they um, put on their gloves, their like robes and their garbs and their hair masks. Now because of COVID, they wear face masks and then that just kind of like continued on. In many of the seafood processing facilities, it's very cold. And the reason it's cold is to keep the seafood fresh, right? Um, that's kind of right. just the main deal. So the environment is cold. The product is freezing cold. So many kids described how their hands would go numb and they would see the older women or men who were working like during their break, putting cream on their hands or like Bengay or something in order to like try and loosen up how cold their hands were. Mm. When it came to like Nathaniel and Joel, when they said that they were working in Atlantic Red Crab, um, it wasn't as cold in there, just extremely loud. I, I can't explain to you how loud it was. And pretty much what was causing that sound was this, like this machine that essentially allows you to kill and clean a crab. And it has these like wire bristles. Nathaniel and Joel both say that they worked doing this. And essentially you like take a crab from a bin, you hold the crab and then you shove it you, like, like, you impale the crab. You impale the <laughs> they're crab. They're alive when they grab them out of the They're bin. alive. Yeah, yeah. And then you like impale the center of it to like kill it. And then you rip the legs off. And then you, the, those like wire bristles that are like bristles that are like moving super quickly, you clean the crab legs with it and you put it down a chute. And then it moves on to like get weighed and then packaged and then, you know, go on from there. But on your feet for hours, hours and hours and hours. So. How long do they work? What are the shifts like? It varies. Um, we spoke to over two dozen kids for this project. And when we were first starting, uh, we met a lot of kids working the night shift. So that is usually somewhere between 3.30 and 4 o'clock and could range anywhere from 10.30 at night to 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, dependent, depending on where morning. you're working. Wow. Yeah. What's really interesting about kids working these jobs is that the end of the day time 
is not consistent. It's not like when you work for Dunkin' Donuts, like you're going to work for like whatever, four to eight or something, right? right? And then you're done and you go home. When you work for a seafood processor, your job is done when all the product is finished mm. for that client for the end of the day. And that's usually what the night shift is all about, is whatever didn't finish during the day is being completed at the night. So uh. these kids are there until the job is over. They can't just like leave, you know, because they're tired at 10 o'clock. You mentioned the uh, effect on their education. You said teachers can often identify students who are working at these overnight shifts. What do they see? Is it fairly common? Teachers have described to us how they can kind of pinpoint when a kid is tired just from being tired or tired from working at a job, let's say, that is a typical 16-year-old teenager job, whether it's like working at a restaurant for a few hours or something like that, versus someone who works at a seafood processing facility. These teachers would describe the smell. Like sometimes the kids would come and because they were working so late, maybe they didn't have enough time to shower. And in some instances, you shower and still the stench is still on you. You can kind of kind of like lingers on. Mm -hmm. And so they could tell from the smell of the child at school. They just, just described like a level of extreme tiredness. Their job was to teach. They're not allowed to have kids sleep in their class because they're supposed to be teaching them. So they had to come up with ways to figure out how to keep these kids who were working so late at night awake and at least participate. And that usually ended up involving getting kids out of their seats or opening a window or having the kid go get a cup of water um, just to be able to get them to finish that class or their day in school. Why do teens work in these seafood processing plants as opposed to Burger King or, or some other safer place? So the majority of kids that we spoke to, they were all migrant teenagers. Most of them were newly arrived. And they took seafood processing jobs because they didn't have a work permit to be able to get better jobs. That's usually one reason. Another reason is they live with a sponsor or their relative or whoever who has worked in seafood processing before and knows the connections to be able to help them get a job quickly. Like the second you're in the U.S., you're starting to pay your debt back to the smuggler who brought you. There is no, like, waiting period, right? Oh, yeah. Tell me about the debts to smuggler's. A lot of teens are coming here with... Yeah, they, the teens owe $5,000, $10,000 right on the outset just for stepping foot in New Bedford, right? So one of the issues is that if these kids don't have work permits, it makes it extremely difficult for them to find quote-unquote, proper jobs for 16- and 17-year-olds um, because that work permit is providing them legal authorization to work at a Burger King, to work at a restaurant, to work at jobs that are permitted for 16- and 17-year-olds. And so this is one of the big issues is that a kid, in order to get a work permit, most often needs to get an attorney. That attorney needs to help them file the necessary paperwork in order to eventually get a work permit, which may take a year, may, may take six months, but there's no time to wait there. And so um, this is one of the, the issues that we found over and over and over again with kids who were like, oh, we work in seafood processing because we don't have papers. And how do the teens end up in these plants? So many of the teens who we talked to said that they got their jobs through staffing agencies, so through kind of subcontractor firms whose whole business is to provide labor to other companies. And in New Bedford, often that means providing labor to seafood processing companies. Mm -hmm. 
And the teens also told us, many of them said that they got their jobs with fake IDs. So they'd purchased fake IDs from somebody locally that said that they were over 18. And they went to staffing agencies. This is what they said with those identification documents. And then they were then able to access jobs and seafood processing plants. What does the law say about whether kids can be working in these conditions? The Fair Labor Standards Act um, has a sort of baseline floor for child labor laws across the country. For teenagers 15 and under working in any manufacturing setting, there's a blanket prohibition on that. For teens working in seafood processing plants who are 16 and 17, there is some lack of clarity in the law about what is and isn't allowed. That is not to say that it is okay for teenagers to be working in these plants. Towards the end of our time reporting on this project, we learned that the the, the U.S. Department of Labor uh, had opened investigations into two seafood processing plants and one staffing agency into potential possible violations of anti-retaliation, overtime, and child labor laws. We had the opportunity to speak to one of the companies under investigation. We also talked to two teens who said they worked at that company called the Atlantic Red Crab Company. And um, they invited us in to tour their plant. We asked them about the two kids who had told us they worked at the plant. They said they were not aware Hmm. of that. They also had said that over the summer, um, investigators from the Department of Labor had come on site and removed one underage worker from the plant then. What the CEO of the company and the chief operating officer said was these workers came to us through a staffing agency. So it's the staffing agency's responsibility to vet their age, to vet their legal eligibility to work. Atlantic Red Crab didn't see that as their their responsibility. So, So Nadine, tell us about that Rhode Island staffing agency. What's the name of it and what's its history? It's called Workforce Unlimited. And um, it's a Rhode Island-based company in Johnston. We've visited their office in Johnston. It's It's kind of in this like It's not a plaza. I don't know how to describe it. It's just like a brick building. And then on one side is like one evangelical church. And then on the other side is another church. It's very, it's like you would, you would miss it. And the sign there is like super tiny. And every time we've gone there, it's been closed. And every time we call, nobody answers. It came to my mind when I was doing original reporting on this at the very beginning, because there were two deaths over the last 10 years at seafood processing companies. And both of those workers who died were workforce employees. And so we always kind of kept track of what workforce was doing in the background, just as we were following other temp agencies in the area. And so once we learned of the DOL investigation against Workforce Unlimited and Atlantic Red Crab and another company called Sea-Watch, we really did start to focus on speaking to as many workforce workers as we could, adults or teens. Did the company comment for the story? No. Uh, You reported that many of these teens use fake IDs, showing how they were 18 to get the jobs through staffing agencies. So how does that complicate any effort to enforce the child labor laws and protect them? It definitely complicates efforts. Um, So I interviewed um, someone who used to run the wage and hour division at the federal level who explained to me that when kids are working with fake IDs, you're not going to find them on a spreadsheet somewhere. Um, You're not going to, like, get employment records and be able to look through them to be like, this worker is 16, this worker is 15, because the records will reflect whatever age is on their fake ID. So it makes it a lot harder to find them and a lot harder to identify violations. That means you have to do a lot of interviewing workers and a lot of building that trust on the enforcement side, which is challenging because one of the other things we found in in our investigations that a lot of experts explained that 
Labor law enforcement agencies are pretty understaffed. There are not, not enough inspectors to really meet the, the need in terms of scrutinizing or paying paying close attention to potential labor violations at businesses across the country, not just here. You know. Yeah, I, that's an interesting point. I mean, how do they know there might be a violation? Are they doing annual inspections or is it just based on if someone complains? The latter. So um, the enforcement system is by and large complaint driven, which means a worker has to come forward and say, this happened to me at work or somebody else can alert an agency. It doesn't have to be a worker. Um, Does that happen often that people are complaining? Because, I mean, the the youth, uh, many of them are right, are undocumented. They're not going to complain if they're concerned about being deported, are they? That's a very good point. And that's something that um, we've spent a lot of time looking at and we've talked to a lot of researchers about. And it's not just because they're young people and because some of them are undocumented. It's that workers generally are pretty unlikely to complain about their working conditions mm. because of the risk understood or perceived to be associated with doing that. It could jeopardize your employment. It could jeopardize your immigration status. There's a real risk in coming in coming forward. Give us the broader context for this, because I know uh, the Child Labor Coalition says teen workers are more likely to accept low pay, less likely to unionize or push for better working conditions. You know, are, are they being taken advantage of in other places, too? So we know from other um, reporting, from other reporters, that there have been teen workers found in auto parts manufacturing plants in the South, hmm. in chicken plants in the South, in uh, the construction industry. Um, I mean, the, the New York Times published a big investigation earlier this year kind of looking at the scope of this problem across the country. Yeah, I think based on that reporting, we can understand that this is not something that's only happening in New Bedford. Because when you think of child labor, I think, oh, didn't the muckrakers take care of this back in the 30s? Uh, you know, it seems like it's it's still going on. The Washington Post reported that child labor violations in the U.S. soared in the 22-23 fiscal year, rising to the highest level in nearly two decades. What's going on here? Okay, children are working because children need money. And the kids who are working, for the most part, are migrant teens coming from Central America. And they're coming with mountains of debt from their smugglers, bringing them across the border. And they have rent to pay, and they have to pay for their families back home. And this is happening all across the country. And that's what was really great about this New York Times investigation that came out is because it showed, we were we were kind of showing a slice of you know, our, our region. But the New York Times really exposed that this problem is happening everywhere. One of the things that we're working on now is trying to understand when these kids are taken out of their jobs because they're not permitted to work, let's say in the New York Times story, the Cheerios factory or a seafood pressing plant or a meat packing plant, what happens next? Because they were there not because they wanted to be there. They right, were right. there because they needed the money, they, right? They, and they lose the money. What does happen next? Well, so <laughs> that's the big question, right? Uh, yeah. That's that's one of the things that I'm so curious about, about like across the country when the Department of Labor is coming in and being like taking out all these kids. And I don't think we're seeing what is happening after. Like we're not staying there. Your reporting came out in September as a series of radio pieces and print articles online. What kind of response have you gotten? There has been legislation introduced in Congress. We had a conversation with Senator Jack Reed, who said that he, our work sort of inspired or helped motivate him to co-sponsor some of that legislation. And that legislation is seeking to do a couple of different things. Um, one would be to increase the penalties that employers face when they are found to be in violation of child labor laws. Currently, they are at a level that experts describe as like far too low to 
dissuade companies from violating child labor laws. One expert said that they're so low that companies can treat it as uh, a cost of doing business, quote unquote. Mm. Other aspects of that legislation would make it easier for regulators to find, to hold both companies and staffing agencies accountable. Um, So sort of focusing in on that. And then also to expand the authority the Department of Labor has to label products that are produced with child labor. Bring us up to date. What's Do you know what's happening with Nathaniel? So Nathaniel's back at school. He doesn't work. He said he'll never work at a seafood processing plant. Again, it was a terrible experience for him. And Joel, his cousin, is in the midst of trying to get into Guatemala and be there forever because his grandmother is sick. He's and trying he to return to Guatemala. Yeah, he doesn't want to come back to this country. All right. Well, Nadine and Nina, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. On November 9th, Rhode Island PBS and the Public's Radio announced a plan to merge their organizations. The plan still requires approval from the Federal Communications Commission and the Rhode Island Attorney General's Office. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall with help from Carlos Munoz and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport. Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org slash passport. That's ripbs.org slash passport.